to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, crisis management, COVID, wellness, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free, reach out. I'm the only Alex Fullick on LinkedIn. So I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. One quick announcement, I will be speaking at the Continuity Insights Conference, April 25th to 27th in Louisville, Kentucky. Fingers crossed, this could be a in-person event. And if it is, I hope I run into a lot of you and maybe twist a few arms and get you to come on the show. Longtime listeners or viewers on YouTube, you'll know that I love to read. I read three or four books at a time. They're all over the house. Uh, I read for entertainment purposes, education purposes. And uh, I came across one book a little while ago. And uh, as soon as I got it, before I even started reading it, I I knew we have to get the author here to to talk about uh, his book. So I'd like to welcome the author of Business Continuity Management, A Practical Guide to uh, organizational resilience and ISO 22301. The author, James Krask. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Congratulations on the book. I know it came out uh, uh, earlier this year, sometime earlier this year, right? It did, yeah. I, I, wrote, I wrote it during uh, one of the first COVID lockdowns here in the UK. So uh, I had uh, I didn't have that much to do other than write a book. So that's the product. But <laughs> I think a lot of people wrote a book or, or start took up painting or something <laughs> during those lockdowns. <laughs> but congratulations. Great book. Lots of information in here for uh, users. Um, now, I know uh, we've gone back and forth with emails and uh, biographies and things like that. So I know um, who you are and what you do. But could you take a moment for our global listeners and viewers, um, tell us a minute or two uh, talk about yourself what you do and how you got into what you do sure yeah no thank you so um i i my day job is working for um for marsh which are a global insurance broker um and i run their business resilience advisory um service based here in the in the uk so my day job is helping clients prepare for um crisis events and and, and disruptions hopefully avoiding them but but putting in place the plans to to help recover when things um, things go wrong, um, I also chair the uh, the ISO um, group that, that looks after ISO two two three zero one, the business continuity standard, um, and some of the organisational resilience standards as, as as well. I've been doing that for a for a number of a number of years. The last big project we were involved with there was the revision of ISO two two three zero one, which came out um, in in, in two thousand and nineteen. 
Um, and really, I've, I've always been involved in this kind of area of, um, of, of, of work. Um, I started out life um, in, in various government roles here in the UK um, uh, as part of you know, a legacy from the Cold War planning days, um, you know, civil defence type, um, type organisations that would, would plan for big catastrophes. Ended up in government, um, in a part of government that, that advises um, uh, the, the, the prime minister and cabinet on um, on crisis issues, um, and uh, then made a, a step into into the private sector. So I worked for PwC, which is one of the big four um, uh, professional services um, companies, doing resilience consulting for for clients. And I had a short um, interlude break um, from uh, from consulting working in uh, in the nuclear industry um, at a place called Sellafield which um, is in the north um, northwest of England very remote location but it's the, the home of all uh, uh, of, of the nuclear industry here in the in, in the UK um, and uh, I was running risk management for, um, for the nuclear decommissioning authority I think they say that Sellafield is one of the most highly hazardous sites in the, in the whole of Europe. So it's quite a complex kind of set of issues mm-hmm. that you dealt with. So that's me. You you mean you didn't fall into this like the rest of us did? <laughs> no, no. I, I I was um I I I sought it out. And originally I was hoping to work for um for FEMA in the US. So I did a I did a degree that was all about um um uh, natural hazards really and um i saw job adverts in um in fema working on flood risk um but i couldn't i couldn't get those jobs because of visa restrictions and didn't really realize that the uk had something slip, uh, similar admittedly on a much lower bu- uh, budget than the us have got for these <laughs> Um, and uh, found my way into a in, into a into a role in um, in, in, in as I say in civil defence. Oh, well, I'm glad you could join us today and take some time uh, to talk about your new book. And again, congratulations on it. Uh, having written a few myself, I know the challenges and what it's like to uh, put one together. So, um, congratulations to you on pulling this all together. Now let's jump into it. Let's start talking about some of the. Uh, the, the topics that you bring up in your book. Um, the first chapter, uh, actually it's the second one, but the evolution of resilience. So I want to get from you, what is your definition of resilience? Well, I mean, it, this is a, this is a <clears throat> question you get asked. Uh, yet for me, it's all about adaptation. You know, history, you know, resilience is about responding to the need for change reinventing yourself and, uh, and, and and adapting the business so that it stays relevant and continue to op- can continue to operate yeah history tells us that that yeah there are there's a litany of organizations that have failed to spot the need for change um, and of course hindsight is a, is a is a wonderful thing it's easier to spot those companies that are no longer with us and point at them and say ah clearly they didn't do something right those organizations aren't, aren't, aren't there anymore. It's sometimes harder to see those organizations that have reinvented themselves um, and consistently adapted to, the, to, to that need for change. Um, I suppose one example of organization that comes to mind that, that hasn't done a terribly good job at that would be something like Kodak. You know, how many of us film cameras these days? Um, you know, should, should they have, 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 have changed their, their business in response to, to the change, changing ways that, that we were all you know, taking photographs? 
um, versus organisations like I think I talk about Nokia in the book that have reinvented themselves time and time again into into in, into the company it is to, to today. So it's all about adaptation and change. Yeah, I remember having um, as a kid uh, Kodak cameras, Insta cameras, Polaroids, all all these different kind of uh, Kodak, and then all of a sudden, what felt like a blink of an eye, they were gone. That's right. Yeah, and it, it does make me wonder. You know, how many how many big companies today won't be here in five, ten, twenty years time? Now, mm-hmm. if you and I knew that, we we would uh, we would be able to retire on the, on 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 our um, on, on the money we make on the stock market. But uh, yeah, yeah, one of the one of the, the things about resilience is about trying to spot those organisations or the signs that those that organisations might be. Um, heading for potential potential doom, effectively, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and and trying to address it before it happens. So, with your definition in mind uh, of of resilience, there are there limitations to business continuity. Well, I, I think <laughs> I think business continuity. Firstly, what I say is it, it's, it's a very very important discipline and a very important capability that I I, I don't think is any less important today. Than it ever has been, even with the birth of this this new concept around resilience. But by its very definition, business continuity is all about recovery, and therefore it assumes that we've agreed a, a predefined point to which to recover to. So it's not necessarily thinking about how to evolve the business and change the business, adapt the business to um, to, to meet future future challenges. Um, and uh, and I think that's probably where you know where the big difference is between business continuity and resilience. I don't think you can have resilience without business continuity. I should say that it is very important. And, and I don't think business continuity can really exist without some form of resilience incorporated into it either. True. Yeah. I mean, when when you think about um, well, look at look at the pandemic as an example of example of that. I have. Um, lost count on uh, the number of business continuity plans that I have read um, in the past, certainly more recently, that were written pre-COVID that um, explicitly write pandemics out of the scope or make assumptions about um, the plan only really being um, effective in an environment where one or two, certainly a small number of geographical locations are impacted at the same time, i.e. you're able to then move processes around the, around the globe. Well, of course, COVID has completely destroyed some of those, those, those assumptions. Um, and um, it, you could argue it's a failure of business continuity, but I think also it, it just points to the need for um, an extra layer of resilience thinking on top of business continuity to think about some of those some of those scenarios that perhaps we're not necessarily well um, well set up to deal with through our normal business recovery plans. Yeah, I think COVID um, kind of took some of the blinders off in, in some respects that oh, we, we have to see beyond our usual fire flood type stuff. Now you can have fire floods in other places and still get impacted, like COVID, you know, it, and to your point with, with plans, if our place is down, we'll do this, this, and this. We'll move here and there. Well, you know what? <laughs> Those other places are down now too. But that didn't creep into our, our mindset because it never really happened in, in, well, the way it has with COVID yeah. before. And, and 
there are other examples of recovery strategies that that you know, big corporates have today that that suffer from the same kind of thinking. So th think about um, uh, cloud computing, um, and we, we've seen a few big you know, disruptions of, of, of some pretty significant cloud providers over the last few um, few weeks and months. Um, how many times have you had conversations with with executives about well it's okay we're resilient because it's all in the cloud well ultimately anybody really tested how resilient your cloud provider is to big macro events like pandemics like major electrical failures as a result of you know infrastructure failure or uh, even a, a solar storm for for example they're all plausible events that we really ought to be thinking about I think one of the things that COVID has done is just demonstrated that we can't ignore those very low probability, high impact, high impact risks, um, mm -hmm. which business continuity should be pretty well suited to, to 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 manage. But I think pandemic has proven that that there are there are some limitations there. Yeah, uh, agreed. Let's move on to another chapter. Um, what can we learn from international standards? Uh, I always find this interesting. Um, uh, what are the benefits and potential pitfalls of following a particular standard? And should any organization adopt a standard? I, I ask because they, you know, I, I know you've got ISO 22301 um, talked about in your book, but I've also got in my files, um, there's a Malaysian standard, there's an ANZAC standard, yeah, you know, there's DRI, B, BCI, and all these other kinds of things out there. So, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, and you've got ACES, you've got Singaporean standards. There's there's plenty to choose from. There's certainly no <laughs> uh, yeah. no shortage of, uh, of of standards. Um, I mean, for, on the take the benefits first. I think yeah, the, the main benefits in the name. Yeah, a standard gives you a consistent standard way of doing something that you can then repeat, measure, and then compare. Um, so that's hugely useful for organisations that are big that have you know, multiple locations, um, a, 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 a distributed workforce where you want to deliver some consistency in the way that you're doing something. Um, and it also helps with efficiency as well because you're not, you're not reinventing the wheel every time you're trying to deliver something. This, you know, what's in a standard, because it's been written by through a consensus process involving a whole bunch of global experts, should be pretty close to being best practice and therefore why reinvent something that somebody has already you know, got the war wounds from, from from writing and doing it the wrong way potentially mm. themselves um, there are though pitfalls um, and I cover some of these in the in in the book and I spend a lot of time with 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 clients walking through these particularly those that that are looking to uh, uh, to go down the route of, 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 of accredited certification. I think there is, you know, there is a, there's quite a tendency for some individuals to take standards a little too literally. Mm. Um, you know, there is a difference in my mind between implementing a standard pragmatically to fit the nuances of an individual organisation versus doing it dogmatically, um, you know, following the process without much, you know, without giving much thought to how it will actually land in the business, whether it's actually delivering any any, any real value. Um, and sadly, I see quite a lot of those that that, that, that example, that approach being taken in, in, in some organisations. And the result is that it 
it just switches people off um, and it stops people from engaging with the process. Um, so I'm, I'm a firm believer that you should take, be very pragmatic in the way that you deliver um, deliver um, um, the standard. Now, you might think that that's a little bit, um, uh, conflicts a little bit with, with, with um, a conversation about getting accreditation, which is all about making sure that you've delivered it to the letter of the, of the standard ultimately. But I don't think it is, because I think if you look at, well, ISO 22301 as, as, as the example, you know, the, 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 the shall statements, which are the bits that, you know, that you're going to get audited against, um, there is sufficient flexibility in the guidance that supports that um, to allow you to implement that set of requirements in a way that is pragmatic to the business. And I think that nuance is sometimes lost in the discussion around how to implement standards. Um, the second question about should organisations adopt a, adopt a standard? Well, I think yeah, it depends on what you mean by adopt. Yeah, if you mean take the principles and the guidance that standards give us, then absolutely, yes, I'm a firm believer of that, basically yeah, back to my point about the benefits that you get. If it's to achieve accredited certification to a standard, well, for me, that is a completely different conversation um, and requires um, a, a significant amount of, of, of more thought um, b b before embarking on that, on that journey. Um, I often tell clients, you know, be, be careful what you wish for with that going down that route of accredited certification because, yeah, you'll get the investment to do it once from your exec. You'll get the certificate. Everybody will be really happy. You hang it on the wall, slap on the back, but then you've got to do it again and you've got to maintain it. And that's where the effort lies. Yeah, and sustaining the amount of um, exec level and management level input into the program after you've got that first first. Um, certificate is, is quite hard work that's not to say that there aren't huge benefits I am a big believer of accredited certification for certain organizations but you need to be very clear on what it's going to deliver to the firm in terms of the benefits right because then you've got to uh, either it's an annual or biannual whatever it ends up being we have to go through this whole thing again you know do, and executives are going to say but we already got our certification why do we have to continue doing this Right. It, and that's, a yeah, that's the difference uh, mindset. Then let's get this, achieve this goal. You know, yes. And as you said, you know, you've got the plaque up on the wall. Great. Now we've done it. On to the next thing. Yeah. But then a year down the road, it's, oh, wait a second. What? What? I have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are some organizations that clearly benefit it, that benefit from it. Um, and the, the argument for getting accredited certification is, is very strong. So organizations where, yeah, you want to demonstrate to your customers that your 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 yeah trusted business yeah safe. Mm -hmm. um, some of the law firms that I know get that get certification in order to demonstrate that 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 you know they're not going to lose sensitive data or they'll be able to recover in 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 times of disruption. Um, then you've got organisations that are part of somebody else's supply chain, particularly smaller organisations. You get absolutely hammered by some of these big businesses on annual attestations of your resilience, questionnaires, procurement processes coming out, there is. And actually having the standard to just show the organization, look, somebody else has told us that our processes are, are you know, meet an ISO, that makes a lot of that, a lot of that assurance work um, go away and reduces the burden on the business. So there are definitely 
some examples where accredited certification really add a huge amount of value. Yeah, I, I've got my plaque. Now go away, leave me alone. <laughs> um, I, I have to ask the question then. Um, oh, and it just jumped out of my head. Oh, yes. Uh, is following a certification or adopting a standard, do we run the risk of creating some sort of a program and processes in place that really aren't fit for purpose within our organization? Like, can they take us in the wrong direction and create some either unnecessary work or some uh, ill will? Because why are we doing this? This isn't the way we do do things here. It can, is there a danger of creating that kind of a friction? And um, uh, uh, I think I think there's always the danger of that, but um, I I don't think it's the it's it's the fault of the standard per se. It's in how you you're applying it. Um, and it goes back to my, the point I made earlier about you need to be you need to be non-dogmatic in how you apply the standard. Deliv delivering something that is appropriate to the to, to, to the business is key. And the first question we should always be asking as practitioners is, yeah, will this capability work? And then everything else kind of follows from from, from that. Uh, and it's a rather glib example, but yeah, if you pick up your business continuity plan and you're stood outside of your um, your uh, your premises at three o'clock in the morning and there are blue lights everywhere because there's been some kind of um, some kind of crisis, if that plan doesn't doesn't tell you what to do within the first couple of pages, it's mm -hmm. probably worth the, the the paper it's written on. So asking that question, will it work? How am I going to use it? Who's going to use it? Um, I think that's the place to, to, to start. The standards help you get there, but they're, they're a means to an end, really. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with James Krask, the author of Business Continuity Management, A Practical Guide to Organization Resilience and ISO 22301. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today, we are talking with James Kraft, the author of Business Continuity Management, A Practical Guide to Organizational Resilience and ISO 22301. James, lots of great information in our first segment. I'm going to jump to another chapter now. 
chapter seven, I think it is, lessons for business continuity and resilience uh, from COVID. Now, COVID has impacted us a lot. What can we learn? What can resilience and business continuity learn from it? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a long podcast in its own, uh, <laughs> its own right, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and we're, we're, we're only, what, goodness knows, halfway through, three quarters of the way through the pandemic. So I'm sure there'll be lots more to learn in the future. I think for, 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 for me, though, the, the main lessons have been, and I mentioned some of this in, in, in the first session, um, the, the, the traditional business continuity plans, I, I think, haven't really um, stood the test of the, of the pandemic in many, in many cases. And that's because many business continuity plans were making assumptions about crisis events that would impact on specific geographies rather than the entire globe at the, at the same time. And in that kind of thinking, um, it's possible to move processes, even move people to different parts of the globe to, to carry, on, carry on operating. Um, but the problem with the pandemic, obviously, is that everything was impacted at the same time. And it was also a, 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 you know, a demand side impact as, 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 as well. So you had supply chain issues um, for many, many organizations, particularly in the early days. So the plans themselves, I think the scope perhaps needs to be properly stress tested um, and the planning assumptions that are written into those plans need to be properly scrutinized. Um, moving on to, to, to testing itself, um, while, on, while on, that, on that subject, I think um, the pandemic has proven to us that we perhaps need to be a little bit more adventurous um, and challenging in the type of scenarios that we're um, we're testing ourselves against. Um, yeah, how often have you been in a in a in an exercise and you get to you get to the recovery phase towards the end? You know the fire's been put out and uh, everyone's been accounted for. You're into recovery and it's ten minutes before the lunch break and you're like, well, we'll do five minutes on recovery and then we'll have the have the debrief. But it's just not enough time, is it? There's so much complexity in that recovery phase. Um, that we never really properly scrutinise and never really properly um, stress test. Um, so I think we need to be more adventurous with the scenarios that we're testing ourselves against, much bigger, more, um, yeah, more extreme scenarios. And we need to stress test the recovery phase much more, um, much more rigorously than perhaps we have in, um, in the past. And then finally, uh, the, 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 the final piece I mentioned in my earlier introduction about supply chain, that being a being a real issue for for a lot of organizations that continues to be a big issue for for certain industries um, as a result of the pandemic and a whole bunch of other issues as well which i'm sure we can go into later um i think the pandemic has proven to us that just how little we know about our supply chains um you know who supplies us not just necessarily those tier one suppliers that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis but the suppliers suppliers and what risks those organisations are exposed to. Um, I don't think we've done anywhere near enough work on, on exploring um, some of the vulnerabilities, um, some of the vulnerabilities there. You, you're staying on the topic of the lessons that we've learned from COVID, but maybe lessons overall. Um, how do we recognise when or if there is a lesson to be learned? Do we have to wait for something to happen to us? You know, we have to be impacted for us to actually learn something, 
or um, you know, how do we recognize uh, a learning situation? Yeah, well, um, learning happens every day. Um, and ideally, you wouldn't be waiting for a crisis event to, to oh. then decide to, 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 to learn, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, of, of um, opportunities that, 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 that we could be seizing to, 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 to learn better lessons from, um, um, to, to, to further improve our, our resilience. Probably the most, the, the easiest, the most obvious is is in response to exercises because exercises are all about learning. You know, has the plan worked? Do 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 my team understand their role in a in a, in a disruption? Are they the right individuals to be involved in a disruption response? What do we need to do differently when when and if it happens for for real? Um, but there are also some sort of more subtle kind of um, uh, circumstances under which you could you could be learning. So. Um, finding out what your peers have, have experienced. You know, we see it every day in the news of supply chain failures and fires and floods of you know, disruptions everywhere. You know, put yourself in their, in their shoes. How would you have responded? Um, do you think your plan would have, would have coped with, with the experience of, of, of that organisation? Um, so, you know, use other people's misfortune, I guess, <laughs> to uh, strengthen, strengthen your, own, your own preparedness. Um, but ultimately, as I mentioned at the beginning, learning happens every day. Um, and a, a, a business continuity practitioner's job is, is never done. Every day there will be an opportunity to um, identify an improvement, um, either from within the business or from, from outside the organisation, from what other, other, other organisations are, re are responding to. The other source of information you could use is you know, things like the World Economic Forum report on, on risks and other sources like that that give you a sense of what the future risk landscape might, might be looking like. Um, and you can just have a, you know, a thought exercise in your mind or even just as a, a, you know, in, in a workshop setting with, 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 with colleagues, think through how you respond to some of those things. Or maybe before that, think through what the impacts would be on your business and these risks mm -hmm. and think about how you'd respond to it. I mean, that, that, that it's a kind of a mini exercise in its own right, but um, it allows you to think a little bit more creatively than perhaps you would otherwise. Well, let, let's look into some of that information that we could learn from other situations. Uh, um, I know we chuckled about it, learning from other people's misfortunes, but what do we do with that information? You know, if we, we see that our competitor is struggling uh, on social media due to something that happened with them, what should we actually do with our own plans and our own responses? What do we do with this information that we're actually learning from, you know, <laughs> watching our uh, competitor sweat, you know, going, going through a tough situation? What do we do with it? Well, I, I, the first thing to do is to to, to triage whether the, the the learning actually relates to, to, to the organisation. Can we learn anything from it? I guess is what I'm what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. um, if if the answer is yes or potentially yes, um, then um, then then I would you know, And depending on how significant that learning is, it might be uh, we need to update our community, our telephone number tree or something like that, which is pretty pretty low level. But if it's something a bit more substantial i'd want to get people in a room to discuss it you know those stakeholders that you would expect to have to respond in the situation that in this, this fictitious kind of uh, uh, competitor has experienced 
talk through their experience um, and how, how it would impact on their parts of the business. And out of that will come a whole load of, um, a whole load of information to improve. Ultimately, though, it needs that, 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 that learning needs to be logged somewhere. Um, and if you agree that it, it, you need to do something about it, i.e. an improvement needs to be made, that needs to be tracked. Um, and I would suggest that then falls into um, your governance arrangements for, um, um, for, for, for maintaining your business continuity and resilience arrangements. Well, on that note, let's move towards the governance. And um, because you talk about that here, uh, developing the governance and implementing resources. So can you define what you mean by governance? Because some people think it is adhering to a standard or a regulation, but what's your definition uh, in, from your writing you know, as to what governance stands for? So the way I define it is aligned with actually another standard, uh, a British standard, which is BS 11500, I think it is. Um, so I define it as governance being the system by which an organization is directed, controlled, and held accountable to achieve its, its purpose. So it's about leadership. It's about the policies that you need in place to direct activity. It's about roles and responsibilities to ensure that management execute that policy. Um, and to a certain extent, it's also about process and the tools that underpin um, the delivery of that, of that process to make it actually happen. What kind of things should we put in place? Is, is Because um, uh, I should have said it in, in my first comment here, when it comes to governance, people will think it's audit and compliance. So do we run a risk of having this whole thing become a tick box exercise, thinking that we're doing it for audit and compliance purposes? Or how do we embed governance into what we need to do so that it doesn't become an audit and compliance exercise? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, uh, yeah, for me, having good governance is, is complete opposite to that. It's about ensuring that the right people within the business are taking action and managing risk up to the le their level of authority. So in terms of, in terms of what needs to be put in, in, in place, I guess you could probably separate this out into, into two components. You've got governance that you need in, um, to manage a, a, a crisis response, which is a little bit different to the governance that you'd have in place to build your business continuity plans and then, and then maintain them. So I, I tend to use a three lines of defense model, um, which some of your, your listeners will be, will be familiar, familiar with. But for those of, those of you that aren't, um, the, the first line of defense are effectively operational management. They're the, they're the coal face. They're the people that are making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis um, about the delivery of, of services to customers um, and um, delivering delivering you know, a bulk the bulk of, um, of of the organization's activity. The second line tend to be tends to be where the policy um, is set, um, and that then drives that first line activity. And then the third line is audit and compliance, you know, usually internal audit, or some other some other form of um, um, independent um, scrutiny. Um, I tend to focus on the first and the second lines of defence when I'm when I'm talking to to, to clients, um, because that's typically where things go wrong, <laughs> in my experience. So in the first line, what you'd expect are, are a bunch of individuals that that are responsible and ultimately accountable for 
writing and, and, and maintaining business continuity plans for their part of the business because they're the individuals that know the business the best. They know where the risks are and crucially they have access to the resources they need to, to, to manage those risks. And then in the second line, depending on the size of the organization, you would tend to have a smallish team, maybe bigger if you have a big global global business that will be writing the policies, putting in place the tools and the, and the processes that the first line need to write plans. They might be involved in some of the, 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 the corporate level exercises that, 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 that go on. And ultimately they are, there is a bit of support to the first line, but also checking that the policy is actually being implemented in the, in the, um, in, in the right way. Um, now, if you get those those responsibilities and accountabilities right, it 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 becomes less of an audit compliance activity and more of an activity that is driven by the business. It's you know it's recognised by the business as something that is of benefit to them because it's all about managing disruption risk at that at that very low level. The first line of defence, as I mentioned. Yeah, I think one of the problems some uh, organisations have is. Uh, either the initiative starts out from the audit and compliance group saying this is what you need to have and then everybody looks at them okay what do I need to do rather than this is what we need to do audit I'm telling you what I'm what we're going to do audit us against what it is we said we would do did we do it and prove that we can do it right sometimes the the cart comes before the horse yeah it's true that is true <laughs> now you talked about <clears throat> excuse me writing plans and procedures when we're writing some of these plans and procedures what are some of the questions we should be asking ourselves yeah um, yeah that's a good question because what it implies is that a lot of people and i think this is true just blindly jump into writing a plan and not really don't really take a step back and think about what you're trying to uh, to achieve so the first question to ask the first two questions to ask is what and who is it for you know what entity is it does it cover mm -hmm. who's going to actually use this plan because that will inform some of the format conversation discussions uh, decisions that you have the language that you use even and the way you describe things and then on from that you know what is the scope of this plan is it one particular location um is it a region is it globe is it a division um, is it for a certain process or, um, or, 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 or activity? So that will then again drive um, uh, drive some of the uh, some of the some of the some of the contact context. But coming back to the who is it is it is it for? Yeah, probably the two ends of the extreme: executive team versus a very operationally focused role um, that might have a, a, a role in, a, in in managing the immediate aftermath of a, of, of, of an incident, you know, a fire or something they're going to look and feel quite different. That operational team just want action cards, right? I need to do this, 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 and this. The exec might need a little bit more guidance and support because for them, it's, it, this, this is a, a, a situation that for, for, for many executives is very unusual for them to, to, to deal with. You know, very few executives will have um, more, certainly more than one big crisis to deal with in their, in their careers. So they need potentially a little bit more guidance and, and support. Um, but not all plan will be this, the, the same is kind of what I'm, 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 I'm aiming for here. You know, they, they will all need to be tailored um, to the audience and, and, and ultimately what, the, um, um, uh, what, what, what they're there to achieve. 
in the first segment, you mentioned the line um, action items, you know, in some of these plans procedures within the first few pages. So what happens or what do we do with all that, what I call fluff information that doesn't need to be there. It usually takes up the first hundred pages sometimes, just ridiculous stuff that no one needs. So how, how do you think we should structure our real action plans? The ones that yeah. we actually use, not the strategy that maybe audit needs to see, but the actual actions that people will use. Yeah, yeah. Highlight it, cut it out of the document and paste it into a different document. I was going to say delete it, but you do need it. <laughs> you can't delete it. It is, it is essential. So I think the best place for that kind of um, that kind of information is, is is in what I would call a framework document that would underpin the underpin the plan. So you'd have a policy that sets the intent of what you're trying to achieve um, across across the business, and you have a series of recovery plans. But then the framework document describes some of the how um, and. Uh, uh, some of the processes that, that that you follow to deliver deliver the plans, you know, audit will need to see that. But but the person picking up a plan, as I said, at three o'clock in the morning with all those blue lights flashing flashing around the car park, doesn't want to read five pages of policy information about business continuity or a training needs analysis of uh, mm. of the involved in writing writing the plan. They just need the actions. Um, but in terms of in terms of the structure, as the second part of the question, I think. Yeah, think think through the 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 um, uh, uh, the timeline of an event. So it's yeah. How will you how will you first become aware of of of, of an issue? How will you be notified? And then who else needs to be needs to know? What are your first actions? Your immediate action actions on on getting that 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 notification. What are our recovery options? That's all the business continuity piece. Who do we need to involve? Other stakeholders that might need to to be engaged to to support the response, um, and who do we need to be communicating with? And what do we communicate to them? And how do we communicate? Which is an absolutely critical part of the of, of the process. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I, uh, yeah, I mentioned in the book some research that my own firm did, Marsh, with Cranfield University a couple of years back, that showed just how important good crisis communications are. In, in, in a disruption. You know, businesses that got it wrong lose on average 12% in their share performance and never really recover it. So it's it's a um, it, yeah, a major incentive to get that right. Mm -hmm. with, with the talking about the structure that you just mentioned there, um, would it be fair to say that you wanna keep it uh, obviously action oriented, but also kind of checklist oriented? Without getting into the detail, um, you know, one line may say, "Go to alternate site." Uh, I'll just pull that one out of the air. Go to alternate site, but not carry all the detail of get in car, go here, and you know, all this other fluff that ends up in there. But keeping it general, straight to the point, so that people are able to adapt to, as you said at the very, very beginning, adapt to the situation. I need to do this. Based on the situation, this is how I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. It, really, the rule is that it, for, for me, you have just enough information in the plan to enable the reader to do something, to take action. Um, yeah, we don't. Yeah, you and I don't need to be told you you put a seatbelt on every time you get in the car. Um, <laughs> but you might. You not. might. 
<laughs> you might need to be told, yeah, you need to travel from A to B in order to 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 to, to, to carry on the carry on the response. Um, so that that said, some plans you, you'll end up with more detail in than others because of the readers, the readership, and also because of you know, if, if it's a task that is unfamiliar to the readers they don't do it very often you might want to give a little bit more guidance so if you've got an incident management plan that talks about how to shut the gas off to a um to a production plant well that probably doesn't happen that often so you probably want to walk through the procedure and how to do it you get that wrong that would be uh, quite serious for the uh, for the individual in the organization yes now let's move to because you kind of touched on it a couple of times here but we haven't jumped in it training and exercising that because that kind of continues on with these plans if people haven't done them too often what are your suggestions on uh, validating all this information and exercising all this information what should we do who should be involved and to what extent and how yeah. often yeah good question so i think um training and exercising you've got you've got two groups two broad groups of individual you've got people that are involved in designing the planning documentation and and and, uh, and and writing the plans effectively. Now they need a slightly different amount of training versus those that are actually involved in the business continuity response. Um, and for, if I focus on that that latter group rather than the the, the, the former, the, the individuals that need um, uh, knowledge of how to respond. Um, should be um, regularly engaged in exercises to build some muscle memory um, around how they would respond in a disruption. It's, it's no good doing that every 24 months. It has to happen much more regular than, regularly than that. Um, that. That said, yeah, the frequency of testing will be dependent upon a number of different things, mainly related to how often um, that individual will be expected to 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 to, to use the, those skills, um, and the level of criticality those skills are to the uh, to, to to the business as a as a whole. Um, if I give you an example, you know the person that is writing the minutes of the crisis management team meeting, crucial role of, in terms of noting down the actions, probably doesn't need to be trained that often because you're likely to be using somebody that maybe. You know, an executive's PA, for example, is used to doing that kind of task anyway, but just in a slightly different environment. But an individual that is responsible for um, standing in front of standing in front of the media and, and giving a, a press conference in response to a to an event, that needs to be exercised a bit more and trained a little bit more a little bit more frequently. So my my suggestion is that you spend some time working out what the specific training and exercising requirements are for each of the individuals that, that, that you rely upon in a, in a crisis and build training plans specific to those, those roles. And you mentioned executives. That includes them too in, a, in things that they would experience. Uh, obviously, you're not going to give uh, training an executive, I hope, on how to rebuild a mainframe or you know, recover an application or something. But you are going to need them to deal with board of directors, key, you know, presidents of other companies, uh, you know, that they deal with all of a sudden picking up the phone and calling them media and things like that. Right. You've got to test them on what they need to do. Absolutely C critical. In fact, they're often 
probably the, the most important group to, to, to train and exercise for the simple reason that, that this is very unusual to them. They don't do this every day. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even if they stand up in front of the media regularly to, talk, to, to give press conferences on you know, their share performance or something, they, you know, in those kind of situations, they're usually dealing with quite a friendly bunch of, of media. Um, in a crisis, they'll be potentially dealing with a hostile media. Um, and that's a very different experience, having seen it for real yeah. myself. We all see it on the TV and on news at the time. You know, even if you think you're good at handling um, handling um, a, a, a journalist during business as usual, handling a, a seasoned war correspondent that's just come back from uh, <laughs> from some war torn country to, to come and report on your um, your oil spill or something that, that you know, everybody's suggesting you you caused is yeah. a very experience that needs to be exercised and trained frequently and on that note we've come to the end of our show james thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise and congratulations on the book business continuity management a practical guide to organizational resilience and iso 22301 it's chock full of great information in here very detailed all kinds of examples and james gave us a few today so james thank you so much for joining us today Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, My pleasure. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.